And uh, while that truly is a gift that we give praise for, it, it also is a reality that could potentially make us uh, presumptuous, comfortable, um, Lord, even, even not appropriately valuing the gift that it is to be able to join together as men around your word. And, um, and yet, Lord, here we are, and, and we do give thanks, and we acknowledge this as a gift. And Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together, that it would be fruitful in promoting further godliness, uh, deeper knowledge of you and discernment in this life. And Lord, that we would grow in, in wisdom, that we would be able to navigate the various circumstances of this life in a way that's pleasing to you. Help us to be humble. Help us to be uh, submissive to you and eager to be uh, informed from your word and conformed by your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, I was thinking about just the joy that it is to be together after um, a significant period of time, a few weeks or a month or two of being away from EQ. And Tom, uh, as we just mentioned, led uh, our first our first gathering of this new year, and uh, so thankful for his leadership and to shepherd you guys in, in that way. And uh, and as I was pondering that, I was just thinking if if there there are pastors all across the world who would be thrilled if there was one man who would get up early, make significant sacrifices to go to bed and get up and be uh, instructed and have fellowship around God's word. And we have the joy that on a, on a light morning, there's 10 of us here. Um, and, and on most, there's 15 to, on most mornings, there's 15 to 20. And, and that's just, that's a testimony of God's grace in your men's life and God's kindness to me and Tom and Tyler to have men who are concerned with their spiritual growth and, and want to progress in sanctification and want to grow in usefulness to God and practical godliness. And so just thankful for you men, thankful for your discipline and diligence to be here and, and the sacrifice that it takes to wake up early. Uh, that, that has a bearing on just how you feel the rest of the day and um, energy that you have. And, and hopefully the spiritual benefit will outweigh the, the physical cost, but it, it does come with the cost. So thank you men for being here. We're going to jump right into our lesson this morning. I, I want to make sure we have ample time for our small group discussion. And what we're going to be talking about is discipline number one, heart, heart shepherding. And this is really a foundational uh, part for every believer is the necessity to shepherd their own heart. And we talk about this in the various disciplines that the believer is called to shepherd their heart with God's word, to direct their heart where it should go, to give intentional direction and insight and care and guarding and keeping of your heart. And that the implications of that is that that should flow out into the extremities of life. The the different areas where your life intersects should be impacted by your diligence to bring your heart before the Lord and to direct your heart as it should go. And the first place that should be impacted by that heart shepherding is your home. So your interac interactions in your immediate home context, whatever that may be, and for many of you guys, that's uh, with, your, with your wives and with your children. Um, for others, that might be a roommate. For others, that might be parents. For others, you, you know, you, you fill in those various categories. But the closest proximity to us, there should be a level of, of faithfulness and consistency of what we're doing with our heart and how that's overflowing into our home context, into our, our most intimate context um, that the Lord has us in. And so discipline one is that you shepherd your heart. Discipline two is that you're faithful in your home and you bring that that overflow of what God is doing in you into your home. Well, if you're negligent in your own heart care, you're going to hinder and, and, and really handcuff what you can bring to your home, to that immediate context. And that inevitably will come out. If you think that you can neglect your own heart care, neglect bring, bringing truth and God's word to bear on your life and, and neglect setting your mind on what is good and pure and noble, and then somehow you're going to be able to instruct and lead others in that direction, uh, that's, that's rather a significant sign of arrogance and pride to think that we would be able to do that. And 
Of course, as we are faithful with our hearts and we're faithful with our homes, that should also lead into a diligent, faithful life as part of the body of Christ. And so we talk about heart, home, and ministry and all of these things. Well, your ability to minister to your home and your ability to be useful in the church is going to be uh, in many ways directly proportionate to what you do with your heart. And your godliness enhances your usefulness. And likewise, your godlessness restricts your usefulness. And so it's imperative that we talk about how we shepherd our hearts. And what I want to do this morning is we're going to talk about honoring the Lord in your Bible reading and, and coming to the Lord, shepherding your heart, keeping your heart. As Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence for from it flows the wellspring of life. How do we keep or guard or protect our heart? Well, one of the primary means of grace that God has given us to direct our and shepherd our hearts is his word. We're going to talk about the usefulness of God's word, but we're also going to talk about just the practice of reading our Bibles and some heart level dispositions that we need to cultivate and direct ourselves to in addition to some practical practices that we need to pursue. So we're going to talk about honoring the Lord in your Bible reading. And as we know, shepherding your heart is not a gimmick, even though you hear that as a, as a phrase, shepherd your heart shepherd your heart with God's word, or as we've heard frequently, come to the word of God to meet with the God of the word. These things aren't uh, gimmicks. It's not church trendy catchphrases that we're just trying to be hip or with it. You guys learned a long time ago, we're not a church that is aspiring to be cool. Um, that's just not our wheelhouse, uh, but, but we do want to be faithful. And so this idea of shepherd your heart, shepherd your heart with the word of God, it is not just a phrase that we throw out to sound cool or sound spiritual. There's, there's substance to this practice. It's significant. And I personally can attest to the reality with really more vigor than ever that shepherding your heart with God's word is absolutely crucial and is more valuable than anything that this world could give to you. Any bank account, job security, family dynamic, relationship status, social status, possession you might have, nothing even comes close to comparing with the value of God's word. And what you find is that when everything seems to be swept away or taken out from under your feet, when circumstances in a moment give way to opportunity to question life, everything in your life, what you'll find is that Christ is actually a rock for the Christian. He's a firm foundation for the Christian. He's faithful. He's dependable. And what is left to a heart that doesn't know Christ is absolutely nothing. Yet for someone who does know Christ and knows his character and knows God's promises, there's actually substance firmly below you as the waves and breakers of life be into you. For one who has God's truth engraved upon their heart, when the storms and breakers of life and the hardship of life and the sin and, and the effects of sin in this world, when they wash away all of the debris in your life, what you find is a remaining stability that keeps you rooted. It allows you to press forward. You're not undone. You're not hopeless. You actually have answers for how to press forward and how to endure and how to persevere. And so God's word is absolutely irreplaceable for the day of trouble, for, for the season of distress. But what I would want you men to hear and understand this morning is that God's word is actually invaluable for so much more than simply the day of distress, than simply for the day of trouble. It's an invaluable resource for those types of circumstances, for those situations, for, the, for those hardships. But God's word is to be our daily bread. It is to be for us our daily bread that we would feast heartily on the riches of God's truth, that we would yield to God in his word day by day by day as we are shaped and molded and conformed into his image and likeness, that his word each day would be our, our sustenance for us our fuel for worship. And Jesus in John 17, 17 prays and says, sanctify them, and he's referring to believers, sanctify them, make them progressively holy, set them apart in holiness in the truth. Your word is truth. 
And God's intention for his people is that they would be made more holy and that God's spirit would bring this about in his people working through his word. There's nothing that should bring you to worship God to a greater degree than a right understanding of his word. And there's no more sure place to know God than through his word. And that's what we're going to be talking about and working through this morning in your outline. How, how do you bring a worshipful heart before God in his word that you might understand rightly what God has revealed and know God from his word and worship him for it? And this is a discipline. This, this doesn't come naturally for really any of us, that we just have a propensity to consistently direct our hearts where it should go with God's word. That takes discipline, practice, development, growth, conditioning. And we, we have to do this to ourselves. And that's why it's a discipline. We, we have to direct ourselves to this. We need to shepherd ourselves towards this practice. Now, for some, reading comes natural. It's easy. It's an enjoyable practice. For others, it's more difficult. You might have a tendency where I'm, I'm just not a reader. I'm just, it's hard for me to concentrate. It's hard for me to get things out of what I read. It's hard for me to stay focused. My, my mom, when I was homeschooled growing up, all through not only elementary, but junior high and high school, she'd walk in on me doing my school, and I'd be laying on the couch upside down, reading and I'd be twisting around. I couldn't sit still and I'd find myself reading. I'd read a chapter, finish it, set it down, go, huh, I don't remember anything. My eyes were looking at the words and I was going line by line. My mind was daydreaming. I was in a whole nother world as I was going through that. Reading just didn't come naturally. Focus, concentration, some call it self-control, didn't come naturally for me. It took a long time, even to the point that I remember years ago, I was listening to um, messages, biography lectures by John Piper called Men of Whom the World is Not Worthy. And I think it's the one on Luther where Piper goes into this little rant about the importance of learning of original languages. And he spends maybe five minutes just talking about the importance of preserving uh, integrity and faithfulness among pastors to the original language so that pastors could shepherd the flock and be as closely tied uh, to the original manuscripts as possible. And I remember listening to that and just thinking to myself, I absolutely agree with him. This is a great point, and that will never be me. I'm just not wired that way. That's, that's, not, that's not my gifting. That's not my strength. And then it was funny because several years went by, and I kind of forgot about that lecture, and I had entered into seminary, and I was in my first semester learning Hebrew. Uh, this actually, I think, was my second semester because I was doing daily readings in Hebrew. Still didn't understand a lot of what I was reading, but I was at least reading daily in my Hebrew Bible. And I was, at that time, taking on various jobs to subsidize our income, and so I, I would do landscaping, and I was riding on a, a riding lawnmower, listening to, uh, to John Piper just randomly on the, the series. And that, that lecture came on, and he starts going on that rant. And I had just read my Hebrew Bible that morning. And I'm literally, okay, so I'm sleep-deprived, right? And, and anyway, I'll just own up to it. I just start, like, bawling on the, on the lawnmower, like, God uses unworthy vessels and weak vessels, because I, I just thought I would never be able to learn something like that. And so the point of the story is, if I could learn Hebrew, you can read your Bible. <laughs> because that gap is monumental. I mean, that's just a huge gap. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but uh, God's grace is sufficient. And, and so wherever you fall in the line of, oh, well, it's natural for, for me to read. I'm a learner at heart. I love this. Or I'm, I'm not into reading books. That's not my natural propensity. God has designed this life where our knowledge about him comes through his revealed word, most directly from his revealed word in scripture. And so we're to be learners, regardless of our wiring, regardless of our disposition. We shepherd our hearts. That might come with greater or less amounts of self-control or discipline, but it is for everyone. There's nobody who just gets off the hook. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm just not wired that way. No. You need to cultivate that discipline. You need to read your Bible, shepherd your heart. So 
As we consider these things, we're going to look at seven principles for shepherding your heart to honor the Lord in your Bible reading. Seven principles for shepherding your heart, directing your heart where you should go to, to honor the Lord in your Bible reading. And that's what, that's what this is ultimately about, is honoring God, glorifying Him, pleasing Him. And that's really at the heart of what this first principle is all about. It's where everything starts. Uh, we want to honor the Lord in our Bible intake, in our Bible reading, in our, in our consumption of God's Word. Well, that starts with a disposition that is concerned first and foremost to pursue God's glory. That's number one in your outline. Pursue God's glory. Pursue God's glory. If you want to honor the Lord in your Bible reading, at the heart level, you need to direct yourself to be concerned first and foremost in your Bible reading with glorifying God. So when you wake up in the morning and you're exhausted and you're getting your motor going for the day and you go, oh, I got to read my Bible. I, I want, no, I want to read my Bible. I want to want to read my Bible. Um, okay, Lord, help this to be about you and not me. Help me to glorify you. Help me to honor you. Help me to please you at the heart level. Start there. If you want God to be glorified in your life, which is really what the life of the Christian is to be about, to honor and glorify and magnify Christ. We know that from 1 Corinthians 10.31 as well as other places. But 1 Corinthians 10.31, we see whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything in the Christian life, fully comprehensive, is to be about the glory of God. And so reading your Bible is first about God's glory. It can't be first and foremost about you getting something out of it. I, I, just, I just don't feel the same throughout the day if I don't read my Bible. And so I'm going to read my Bible so I can really get something out of it. Don't start there. Don't start with that as the foundation. Start with, God, I want you to be glorified in all of my life. And this morning, while I don't, may or may not feel like reading my Bible... I'm going to come and I'm going to humbly submit to you, help me in how I conduct myself, even in this time reading my Bible, to do so in a manner that glorifies you, that honors you. And so what we find is we don't read our Bible to be good Christians, to fit in in our Christian community. Well, everybody at church is reading their Bible and I got to read my Bible. Or a fellowship group is tomorrow. I almost said it. Fellowship, fellowship, fellowship group is tomorrow. Uh, you know, I, I got to read my Bible. Uh, accountability can be good and can be helpful. But, but as we're working to honor God, we want to direct our heart at the core inner man level. We want to see God glorified. That's the end. Not some external on ourselves, not some emotional response for ourselves, but that God would simply be glorified. We don't read our Bible to be good Christians. We don't read our Bible to find a golden nugget to stay with us throughout the day. We read our Bibles worshipfully, wanting to glorify God by drawing near to our great God in his word. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. Philippians chapter 1, I want you to look at verses 9 through 11 with me. Paul says this, he says, and this I pray, so this is Philippians 1 starting in verse 9, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. He wants them to grow in knowledge, he wants them to grow in discernment, that it would abound more and more so that, what's the reason? So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order, why is it important that we approve the things that are excellent? So that we could be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been, how does this come about? Having been filled, so even our, our sincerity and our blamelessness that's to be progressed until the day of Christ, that comes through approving what is excellent, that flows out of real knowledge and discernment, this is brought about by the filling with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. So it's a gift from from Christ, he grants us to this, he gives us this, for what purpose? To the glory and praise of God. 
to the glory and praise of God. And so what we see here is that we actually must cultivate a desire to grow in our knowledge, our real knowledge and discernment, so that we can approve or discover or distinguish what is excellent, so that we grow in holiness, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes with through Jesus, and all for what purpose? To glorify, to the glory and praise of God. This is the ultimate end of the Christian and must be the ultimate end of our Bible reading as well. In fact, when we grow in knowledge and discernment, it inevitably leads to these various things that happen to the glory of God. God gets glory when we are sanctified, when we're set apart, when we are, are matured and grown in our knowledge and discernment. And so this changes things for us. It changes our Bible reading from where your feelings are the dictator of the fruitfulness of your time in God's word to, did I worship God in this time? That's the litmus. Did I humbly submit myself to him? That's the real test. Was this a fruitful time in God's word? Well, did you humbly submit to him? Did you entrust yourself to him? Did you grow in knowledge before him and discernment? That's what we're aiming at. Not, do I feel better about myself? I just have a, a jump in my step when I read God's word. Great, that's a wonderful fruit of faithfulness with God in his word. Faithfulness before God in your time in his word. But that's not the motivating factor that drives us. It needs to be something deeper than our own selfishness or our own desires for, for a positive outcome, uh, unless that is that our desire is that God would be glorified. It's, it's to be about God. It's to be about glorifying him, honoring him, drawing near to him, knowing more about him, treasuring him. It's like this. If, if you said, well, I, I love my wife. I love my wife. Oh, how do you guys, how do you express that? How, what, what do you love about her? Uh, well, I love that she is my wife. Well, why? Well, I don't know. But tell me about her. Um, what, what have you guys done together recently? Oh, we don't ever spend time together. What? <laughs> you don't ever spend time with her? Well, I've got other things in life that are really important right now. You don't spend time with your wife? you don't understand. It's a busy season. <laughs> I don't think that would fly. Well, this is God who has actually made a way for us to have relationship, have fellowship with him at the cost of his very own son, and yet we can so easily let ourselves get nudged off track, directed off course, which is again why we call it a discipline. We have to direct ourselves in this. We have to we have to discipline ourselves for godliness, for faithfulness. And so reading your Bible is first about God's glory to know him, to draw near to him, to be changed by him, to be useful for him. And so we pursue God's glory in our Bible reading. That's really the foundational point that we must build all of the other aids and disciplines around this on, is that there's a, a desire and a directing of our desires to want to glorify God. Well, what do we do when we don't feel like glorifying God? What, what, what do we do if we wake up in the morning and it's time to read our Bibles, it's time to shepherd our hearts, and we just don't feel like reading our Bible? We don't feel like glorifying God. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one who's ever felt that way where I woke up and I'm just like, I just want to go back to bed. <laughs> I just want coffee. going to stay a little longer in the shower. It's cold out there. Well, what do we do? Well, we pray, and in faithful discipline, we fight what we feel in those moments, and we do what we know is right. We bring our hearts to God's word so that we would grow in real knowledge and discernment so we can distinguish what is excellent, which is the glory of God, right? Those very things that God produces in the believer who comes to him that leads to the glory of God is, is the disciplines that we must pursue, we don't expect the outcome of God being glorified apart from the discipline of us being faithful in what he calls us to on the front end. 
one of the most foolish or counterproductive things we could ever do or, or think in that situation is I need to wait to read my Bible or I need to wait to pray or I need to wait to spend time with the Lord because my heart's not in the right place. Have you ever heard that before? And I, I don't want my reading of my Bible to be legalistic. So until I get my heart in the right place, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on my Bible reading. And listen, I understand logically how people get there. And I actually think there's probably within um, some of just the, the obvious foolishness of that, of that kind of disposition, there's actually some virtuous desires of not wanting to dishonor the, law, the Lord with a corrupt heart. I don't want to come before, I don't want to dishonor his word because I'm bringing the wrong heart to it. That's, that's sweet. That's a, that's a commendable virtue, even though it's incredibly misguided. Um, what we need in that moment more than anything is God's word to inform us and instruct us so that we don't let our emotions and our natural dispositions or our sinful dispositions lead us in that moment, but rather that God's truth would lead us, that we'd be spirit-led because we're grounded upon truth of what's real and right and good. Part of seeking to honor God in our Bible reading is actually, it's not keeping ourselves from reading because our heart is in the wrong place. It's humbly submitting ourselves to God, thinking less of ourselves and concerning ourselves more with God in that moment. And so we bring our hearts to God's word when we feel like it, and we, feel, and we bring our hearts to God's word when we don't feel like it. That's why it's a discipline. We entrust ourselves to God in faith. It's actually an act of faith to say, I don't want to do this. I don't think I need to do this. I don't feel like doing this. But Lord, I'm going to submit and I'm going to yield in faith to you. And I'm going to do it anyway. Please work in my hard heart. Help. I believe. Help my unbelief. And you press forward. So the first directive in shepherding your heart to honor God in your Bible reading is pursue God's glory. Next is very similar within the pursuit of God's glory. It's, it's number two, depend on God as your greatest aid. Depend on God as your greatest aid. That's your second point in the outline. Your second blank is God. So pursue God's glory. And then number two, depend on God as your greatest aid. The, the greatest aid in my Bible reading is God himself. To understand, to learn, to grow, to, to even be consistent in the discipline. And so we pray and we ask God for help in our Bible reading to understand his meaning in the text. And for clarity, this isn't asking God. It's not depending on God through prayer where you ask God for some sort of insight into the hidden meaning of the text that he would supernaturally unveil some special insight that you couldn't uncover because it was veiled somehow on the words in scripture, but now you have this extra spiritual insight that lets you see things that beyond what is there and you somehow attribute that to the Holy Spirit. That's not at all what we're talking about. Rather that he would give you eyes to see what was God's purpose for writing what he did. What was he intending to reveal? If you're a believer, you can have confidence today to be able to read your Bible, to grow closer to God, to honor him, to please him, to grow in your faith, to rest in his word. And you depend on God as your greatest aid in this process. And this looks like prayerfully coming to the Lord with humility and dependence upon him. This is cultivating a humble dependence and, and disposition before God as you worshipfully come before him. And prior to salvation, you could read God's word, but the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. That's 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now, if, if you are a believer, you have eyes to see things about God, to come before him in his word, to have a true understanding and, and to welcome the truth into your life. You no longer are seeking to suppress the truth about him in your unrighteousness. And so 
when thinking about God being the greatest aid, he isn't the greatest aid in that he does something with his truth that unlocks some secret there. God being your greatest aid is that he deals with you. He helps you. Your eyes of disbelief, your unwillingness to submit, your selfish intentions and motives that elevate your thoughts and your ideas above what is clearly written. As if what God would clearly reveal in Scripture is not enough, I need something more than that, that that is an impression or an interpretation or idea that just comes to mind in the moment. God working, God being our aid actually is him guarding us from contaminating his word. That's what we want. And so how important is it then to come to the Lord in prayer, to seek his help, to see what you must about him and his word and that you would humbly and worshipfully submit to him, that you would accept what he has had to say about the nature of sin and the dangers of what lies within us, that you would gird yourself with the reality of the saving nature of God who provides a way of salvation and freedom from sin's bondage and the penalty through his own son and that you would be able to observe God's heart for righteousness and the holiness of his people that that you would fill your heart and mind to love what God loves and to pursue, pursue those things. We pray. We ask God for help. So as we want to honor the Lord in our Bible reading, when we want to honor the Lord with the discipline of shepherding our heart through intentional time with him regularly, what does that look like? Well, it starts with directing your heart to desire his glory above all else. And then you direct your heart to be dependent and humble before him, recognizing that you, ne you desperately need him. Even, if, even in your attempts to do what is right, you must be wholly dependent upon him for the strength to do so. Well, number three, what next? Employ self-control. Employ self-control in your reading practices. That's number three. Employ self-control, so that's your third blank, self-control in your reading practices. God is your greatest aid, and in this you must depend upon him as you exhibit self-control in your Bible reading. Scripture. Scripture is God-breathed. The, the Spirit inspired the Bible, yet he does not short-circuit, he doesn't shortcut the Scriptures by somehow supernaturally whispering in our ear what they mean. No. We pray for help. And we don't pray that he will spare us the hard work of rigorous study and reading and meditation. What we pray is that he would make us diligent to work hard and humble enough to welcome the truth into our lives. The work of the Spirit in helping us grasp the meaning of Scripture is not making study unnecessary, but rather making study fruitful. We work hard. We submit to God's word. We welcome the truth into our lives. God's work in the Holy Spirit aiding us in this is, is not that Scripture becomes unnecessary for, or study becomes unnecessary for the Christian, but, but rather we pray that God would make us unconditionally open to receive and submit to what our study reveals instead of twisting the text to justify our own unwillingness to accept it. And this takes work. It takes self-control. This self-controlling in our Bible reading, I, I put into three different categories, and we'll work through each of these. So under number three, employ self-control in your reading practices, we see letter A. Well, the first way that we can employ or that we must employ self-control is this. Letter A, hold fast to the normal, to the normal use of words and languages. Hold fast to the normal use of words and languages. Everybody with me on the outline? Anybody lost? Okay, excellent. When we come to God's word and we're reading God's word and we're wanting to grow and be shaped and deepened in our faith, we need to come expecting a single clear meaning from the text. That's how language works. That's how God has created it. We're not telling God how he must act within something we've created. We're rather saying we must submit to how God created language. 
It has an intent. It has a meaning. There's clarity. There, there's, there's authorial intent behind what is communicated. This is how language works. Communication is a gift from God to clearly communicate one meaning at a time. Sentence by sentence, we communicate in order to be understood and in these ways. And, and so it is with God's communication in Scripture. In fact, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19 say this, I am the Lord and there is none else. I have, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. Then he goes on to say, I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. The Lord expected the offspring of Jacob to understand him because his meaning and his words were not secret or unfindable. God communicated to be understood. This doesn't mean God has spoken regarding everything. There are secret things that still belong to God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. But what he has spoken, he has done to be understood. I, I've heard Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, used to describe difficult parts of Scripture or parts of Scripture that that person didn't agree with and didn't want to submit to. It's clear right there. Yeah, well, I, I just don't think that's really what God is saying. The secret things belong to the Lord. We don't need to concern ourselves with those things. And that's just completely off basis. God, in saying the secret things belong to the Lord, is not saying the things that I've revealed are secret. No, there's simply things that he has not yet revealed to us in their entirety. Those are the secret things. But what he has revealed, he's written to be understood, to be known. And yes, that requires spiritual appraisal that we would have eyes to see, but not because the meaning is obscure or his word is somehow inadequate or insufficient. The problem lies on us, on our spiritual depravity. And so we must be awakened to have eyes to see, and the Holy Spirit illumines the truth that is there in God's Word so that we have eyes to see it. It's not some sort of decoder ring that, that allows us to see something that, hey, it was there all the time, but it was veiled. No, I'm the veil. The veil is on me, not on God's Word. And so he works in us to be able to see what he has revealed. So we hold fast to the normal use of words and language. We let words mean what they mean. We don't spiritualize things. Many of you may have heard Scott Maxwell give it, say it this way. If a husband comes home from work and finds a note on the counter letting him know the hallway light is out, he doesn't conclude from that that spiritual darkness is welling up in the house. He reads the note normally, puts a new light bulb in the hallway. Well, that's how we're to read our Bibles. This way, this practice is known as literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic or method of interpretation. Hermeneutic is just a fancy theological word for how we study the, the rules and practices of how we study and read our, particularly our Bible, a biblical hermeneutic. And the, the practice of a self-controlled holding to the, the fast, holding fast of the normal use of words and languages would fall in the category of a literal grammatical, historical. We read what is actually there within the grammatical setting, within the historical context of what was taking place. And so you take into account the actual literal meaning of the words within the grammatical way language works, and you labor to understand the history or the context of what the passage sits and to whom the original audience was. And in this, you may come across metaphors. This is normal to language. It's not over-spiritualizing when Scripture puts things forward as a metaphor. That's how language works. When Jesus said, I am the door, in John 10, 7 through 11, we don't conclude, because we're literal, grammatical, historical, that Jesus is made of wood and swings on a hinge. Of course not. And we're not over-spiritualizing it to understand the imagery and the metaphor of Jesus being the entrance or the gateway into eternal life. It's good to, even when looking at metaphors, though, to begin thinking through what is a door? What is the purpose of a door? What was Jesus trying to communicate by suggesting uh, this resemblance to a door? And again, different categories of writing don't threaten this. 
We know that historical books are written in different styles and contexts than poetic literature and prophetic or epistles. And so you employ self-control by t using the normal uses of language, by understanding the normal use of language. And then next, you employ self-control this way. You actively equip yourself to understand God's word. That's letter B. You actively equip yourself to understand God's word in order to take the normal grammatical understanding or even to be able to understand the contextual nature of where a passage sits. It takes work. You have to equip yourself to understand language, equip yourself to know the history, and recognize this is a process. You can't equip yourself all at once. And that doesn't diminish what God would want to do and what God will do in your life through his word. Well, I can't read my Bible at all because I don't know how to sentence diagram. Or I can't read my Bible at all because I haven't read an exhaustive context of every book in the Bible yet. No, it's a process to grow in these things. And growing in those things will enhance your ability to accurately handle God's word. It takes time. So you work to grow in your understanding of language, work to understand the context of passages and books, read your Bible, reread passages over and over again. Don't be content to settle for only listening to the Bible in the car or while you're doing other things. That can be a helpful practice. If you didn't get up on time and you didn't read your Bible and you put Bible on, on, uh, on your phone on, in the car and are listening, that's great, that's helpful. Don't be content to settle to have that be the highest degree of Bible intake that you enjoy. Be intentional, work hard. Spend thoughtful meditation and contemplation of what the words mean and what God was writing and pray through various passages, read, reread, over and over again. Intentional study is required to properly handle and understand God's word. And if you have no idea when Ezekiel was written or to whom he was speaking or whom it was concerning, you'll have a lot more difficulty. But simply knowing or understanding that the book of Ezekiel was written around 570 to 592 BC to Jews who were captive in Babylon at the time, um, and that the theme of the book is the condemnation upon Judah's godless leaders and condemnation upon Judah's foes and opposers. And yet consolation regarding Israel's future, you'll find a world of difference of understanding what you're reading, benefiting from it. But that, that takes work. That takes an intentional thought and time. So actively equip yourself to understand God's word, recognizing that's a process over time. And then letter C, Understand the relationship, understand the relationship between interpretation and application or implication. <clears throat> understand the relationship between interpretation and application or implication. Application and implication would be very closely related, more so than interpretation and application or implication, although they are both tied closely to one another. You should never get to the application or implication without first going through the tunnel of interpretation. You, you have to go diligently through proper interpretation in order to fortify and enhance your application or implication. There's an important relationship here. So what is interpretation? Interpretation is this. Interpretation is understanding the truth in the passage within the intention of the author. And really both little a and big A. Understanding the truth in the passage within the intention of the author. Interpretation finds the meaning the author intended in his historical situation. Interpretation is the understanding of the truth or understanding the truth in the passage within the intention of the author. Implication is how the text implicates you. How does your thinking need to change? Are there implications on your thinking, on your actions of, of kind of what needs to be impacted by the truth of the text? Application is very closely related, and there, there's fine nuances, and they may overlap in some ways, but application is the various ways that one may need to live or think in light of the meaning of the text. 
the various ways that one may need to live or think in light of the meaning of the text. Thus, simply understanding rightly an interpretation shouldn't satisfy us. We should labor to understand how that text and our, pro our proper understanding of the text actually intersects in our life. And likewise, rushing to application without diligent work of interpretation is a dangerous practice. We need to have both, and this is why it requires self-control. To pull back the reins when we want to rush to reading a passage and going, oh, here's, here's all the ways that it applies to my life. But you haven't actually done diligent study to know, did I get the interpretation right? That requires self-control. And it also requires self-control to not let ourselves just be excited about the truth that we uncovered and never actually think about how our life is implicated or how we need to change in light of what we read. Both of these require self-control. If a wife reads Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And her conclusion is that the text, that the meaning of the text is that she must regard her husband as more important to herself. She's conflated how she believes her life must change with what Paul actually means. Paul, writing to the believers in Philippi, is helping them understand in the midst of persecution, Christ-like sacrificial consideration of each other over themselves is necessary and appropriate. Yet, if the passage concluded by the wife, the, the wife concludes that the passage... Excuse me. If the, if the passage means what the wife concluded, um, that... The meaning of the text is that she needs to consider her husband, that a wife needs to consider her husband more important than herself. What is the meaning of the text for the husband? That he needs to love himself more? Well, not, now the meaning for the text would have to have another meaning different for the wife to have any bearing on the man's life. And so that's important to make that distinction between what does the text mean and what are the implications. A wife can read the passage and say the meaning is that a Christian is to consider other Christians' needs above their own. The way that that implicates me is that my interaction with my husband, I need to consider his needs above my own. And the application is I'm going to do his laundry um, as an act of service and love and care for him, or I'm going to you know, provide dinner, bring him dinner when he's stuck at work late, or whatever the different application might be of how she goes about the implications. And it doesn't always go that way. You can have implication, and maybe there's not a direct application, but um, all of it roots out of the meaning. What does it actually say? And you have to have self-control to, to let the passage say what it means and mean what it says. Any questions about that? Okay, we'll keep going. Well, next, number four, we need to long to be purified by God. When we come and we want to honor the Lord in our Bible reading, we need to have a desire to be, to be changed by God's word, to be affected by God's word. We just recently went through this passage on a Saturday evening main service, Psalm 119, 9 through 16. And so we're going to move rather quickly through this, just give some summaries uh, if you didn't hear it, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that sermon, and, and it'll fit well within the context of what we're covering this morning. But the believer is to long to be purified by God. It honors God when we, are, when we are conformed more to his likeness, when we're sanctified, when we're made more holy. And we know from Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. God's word is a significant means in the purification of his people. And so what do we do? What, what do we see in this passage? Well, we see the call to seek God with all your heart. That's letter A. So number four, long to be purified by God. Letter A, seek God with all your heart. And you see it right there in verse 10. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. So as we long to be purified by God, we see several directives that aid us in God purifying with his word. And first is, that we seek God with all our heart. We pursue him. And this comes back to 
going to the word of God to meet with the God of the word. We're coming because we're, we're not just wanting to check a religious box of, of some sort of external activity. We want to meet with God and he's revealed himself to us in his word. And then, and then letter B, treasure God's instruction in your heart. Treasure God's instruction in your heart. Verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And that, that word for treasuring there in the Hebrew is not meant to describe so much here the value of God's word, but more so the keeping, the intentional keeping. So when he says, I treasure your word, I have treasured in my heart, he's talking about I've stored it in a safe place. I've kept it protected. Like you would, like you would tr uh, store a treasure or keep a treasure carefully. That's really what this, uh, what, what the psalmist is going after in this verse. Later, he talks about the value of God's word. In, in verse 11, it's not so much the value, but the keeping of it. I've kept your word safe and protected as if it were a treasure in my heart so that I may not sin against you. And this is a reflection of the value that you believe God's word possesses. But in verse 11, it's more of a testimony of your, your careful keeping, your protecting of it, your holding it in the depths of your heart, treasuring it, guarding it, keeping it, so that none of its riches might slip out of your fingers. And then letter C, long for instruction from God. Verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. There's a humble disposition that wants to be taught. You long for instruction from God. You want to be told what to do. Have you ever had an instance growing up? Uh, for some of you, you might remember this. For some of you, it might be harder to go back that long. But growing up with your parents, yeah, exactly. I got it. Uh, growing up, there were just certain things you didn't ask because you knew the answer. You, you didn't want to be instructed. You wanted to just go do what you wanted to do. That's not to be the disposition that we have with the Lord. We need to come wanting, longing for his input, wanting his instruction. Longing for that. A letter D, proclaim God's instruction to others. Verse 13, with my lips, I have told all of the ordinances of your of your mouth. God's word is best kept when it's kept by someone who's proclaiming it. There's an accountability and a, uh, um, yeah, an, account, an accountability and just a, an etching of God's word that takes place on your heart when you share it with others. You internalize it. You understand it better. To be able to teach something takes a higher level of understanding and, and, and comprehension of a topic than if you simply know it. Maybe you've experienced that where you learn something. You're like, yep, I got it down. Oh, well, explain it to me. Ah, uh, it just works, <laughs> you know. Proclaim it. Know God's word to, and, and proclaim it. Share it. And that's going to be flowing out of a heart that loves it, right? If you're proclaiming it, it's because you understand the greatness of it. Letter E, rejoice in God's instruction. <laughs> and this is what I just mentioned before, the, the valuing of it, the, the delighting in it. And we see that in verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. The delighting in or the, the treasuring or rejoicing in God's word is as much as in all riches. There's a delight in God's word. And we're to instruct ourselves to live this way and instruct yourself to enjoy God's word, to long for it. In fact, in 1 Peter 2, we see that command. Long for the pure milk of the word. A direct instruction command for believers in the New Testament to desire or crave or long for scripture. And then meditate on God's instruction. That's letter F. Letter F, meditate on God's instruction. In verse 15, he says, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. We, we ponder, we contemplate. We recall God's word to memory. We roll over it in our mind over and over again, thinking about it. Have you ever had a circumstance where you have a hard conversation in the middle of the day and you go to bed at night and, and your mind is just racing, replaying that whole conversation in your head? I should have said this. What did they really say? What did they, did they respond the way that I felt like they responded? What would happen? Oh, I should have said this. And you just roll over it in your mind. That's what we should do with God's word. That's how we come to God's word, where, where we don't just read our Bible, we check the box, we close it, and we go on with the rest of our day. God's word, we, we should be replaying it, contemplating it, meditating on it. 
And then lastly, joyfully retain God's instruction. We see that in verse 16. I shall delight in your statutes. That's the joyful part of it. I shall not forget your word. That's the retention. Joyfully retain God's instruction. And so we must long for God's purifying effect of his word to be present in our lives. And then as we wrap up this morning, we'll work through the, the last three quickly. You may not believe me, but we will. Number five, humbly entrust yourself to God's wisdom. That's your blank, entrust. Humbly entrust yourself to God's wisdom. We must joyfully submit ourselves to God's wisdom. God gets to decide what is right. If you want to honor the Lord in your Bible reading, come with a humble disposition that is yielding to him, that is submitting to him. Your emotions are not to rule over your Bible reading. Rather, your Bible reading is to guide your emotions. And so statements like, well, I read this today, but I just couldn't believe that God, I, I just can't believe that God would want this for me. Or I can't believe that God would want to keep this thing from me. I couldn't believe in a God who would dot, 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 fill in the blank. It can just never be on our lips. That can never be on our hearts. We humbly entrust ourselves to God's wisdom. We yield. We submit. Where God has given clear instruction, we obey. We don't argue with God. We can't bring a predetermined expectation of what God must say to various situations. And this is especially difficult when we've experienced extremely difficult circumstances. I know God says, love your enemies, but you don't know what they did to me. I know God tells me to forgive, but what they did is unforgivable. When we elevate our thoughts or our circumstances or our ideas over God's. Number six, trusting, trustingly resign yourself to the sufficiency of God's word. You entrust yourself to God's wisdom and you recognize the sufficiency of God's word. You can write down 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.3. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for correcting, teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness so the man of God may be adequately equipped, ready for every good deed. When you know God's word, there is a readiness for every good deed. The first one is 2 Timothy 3.16, and the second one is 2 Peter 1.3, that his divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. We can have a confidence in the sufficiency of scripture to equip us and give us what we need to honor God, to please him. There's no circumstance in this life where the Christian is left unequipped or unable to glorify God in it. Whatever hardship, whatever difficulty, whatever sorrow, whatever trial, whatever, whatever you find yourself in, you're never left without the ability to glorify God in it. And a chief means of God's equipping you to glorify him in it comes through his word working in conjunction with his spirit in your life. And so you trustingly resign yourself to the sufficiency of God's word. You don't need to go look outside of God to get what you need to glorify God. I need a change of circumstance. I need a change of doctor's report. I need this thing to be undone. I need a fill in the blank. All of these different, I need this relationship to change or this dynamic to change or this person to approach me first or fill in the blank with whatever it might be externally. That's not ultimately going to satisfy what needs to take place if your desire is to glorify God in it. God will give you what you need. You don't need to run outside of God's word to find solutions for this life's problems. And then lastly, obedient, obediently embrace God's care for you through the church. Through the church. God's design is for his people to be in a church. And when we think about honoring the Lord in our Bible reading, do not forsake assembling together. God's design is that we gather together. God's design is that there are pastors, elders, who guard the flock and watch over the doctrine of the church, who equip saints for ministry. God's design is that members, sheep, sharpened members, are connected to one another, growing in love, serving, that there's ministry taking place. There is safety in the church for you, in your 
Bible reading, in your honoring the Lord in your Bible reading. If you find yourself embracing theology that no one around you believes, you probably need to slow down and make sure that you're listening to others as well as you're listening to yourself in that moment. If you're, if you're reading and you're taking in Bible intake and all of a sudden you go, I, I think God's word actually says this about the church, the gospel, eschatology, spiritual gifts, fill in the blank, and you come to church and nobody else believes that, that's a safety for you. You might be right, but you're probably not <laughs> if everybody else doesn't. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but there's actually safety in testing your own thinking against those in the body of Christ who also love the Lord. And so obediently embrace God's care for you through the church. Don't go off crazy theological paths. You won't think they're crazy in the moment. Don't go down theological rabbit trails and get 10 miles down the road before you ever talk to anybody else in the body of Christ and test your thinking. I'm reading this. It says this. I'm thinking this. I'm thinking this. What do you think about that? What do you think? Of, what do you th am, am I missing something here? No, actually, that's really helpful. I mean, the, the church has been sharpened from astute insight that comes within, it, within the church. And the church has been protected from poor hermeneutical practices, poor interpretation, uh, because people tested their own thinking against others. Obediently embrace God's care for you through the church. Any questions? Comments? Okay, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege that it is to know you. Thank you for your kindness to us, to give us your word. It, it truly is uh, so precious, so valuable. Help us to be men who are disciplined, who are faithful, who do desire your glory above all else. Help us to be diligent, to shepherd our hearts, and, and to grow in the practice of um, diligently directing our hearts with your word and worshipfully coming before you. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.